0: we're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation.
1: Science, logic, reason. You have any hard data?
2: Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast bringing you independent and interesting content from the small island of Tasmania and the week we're putting the E in STEM, that's the engineering of science, technology, engineering and maths. So my name is Dr. Neve Chapman and I'm joined by my co-host Dr. Sarah Leiden. and I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording, the Palawa people as we record on Lutruwita. I also acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and where you are listening and on behalf of everyone I pay my respects to elders past and present. Today we'll be talking about building information modelling with our expert guests Klaus Strohl from Gandhi and Roberts and Alex Toom from School of Engineering University of Tasmania. So Sarah can you tell us a little bit more about our guests? Uh, So Klaus has a
3: background in structural engineering and now works with Tasmanian consulting firm Gandhi and Roberts as a building information modelling consultant and Alex is a senior lecturer in civil engineering with the School of Engineering at UTAS. So Klaus, can you explain for our listeners what building information modelling is and why you are passionate about this approach to improve efficiencies in the building industry?
1: Yes, I can. Um, it is actually quite a complex subject and a lot of people think, um, think different about what BIM actually is or means. But it's really about um, digitalization of the construction industry. Going back a step, um, traditionally, and that's what currently still happens, is um, the design is done... Um, by delivering 2D um, sheets of PDFs or paper, even still, um, and on building projects, you've got lots of different designers and planners involved, and at the end you everyone issues a a one sheet and you need to overlay them to get a full picture right so building information management is trying to um, get all that data into one let's call it in one common data environment where everyone gets the data from everyone else as well. So we've got a um, <coughs> database in the middle where everyone contributes to and also draws the information that the individuals need for to progress their design. The concept is not new at all, but applying it in the building industry is certainly um, something new. So the similar con- concept has been applied in other industries, in the manufacturing industries for forever, almost. So...
3: So, what kind of things would go into that central system?
1: So, probably you would start with the architect. The architect um, decides, or the client decides, I want to build something. Gets in touch with an architect. They come up with some with some room data sheets because they need to understand what do I actually want to use the building or the facility for. Um, That information is being stored in that central database, so that. The architect can then build a 3D model in order to encompass all of those um, rooms and spaces that are required. All the other engineers that are part of that design process can then take that information in order to progress and refine where do I need columns, where do I need load-bearing elements, or where do I put ductwork for the ventilation of the system in. And that is once visualized in a 3D environment, everyone understands it. Right? Whereas if you've got it all in plan 2D um, in front of you, the client will never understand what that means. Right? Only experts, professionals would understand and can overlay all of, those, all of that different information in order to make sense of it and to understand and get a feel for the space that, are, that is designed.
3: Uh, so this is something that then goes across quite a lot of different engineering um, professions?
1: Yes, certainly. Any profession that is related to the construction industry. Yes, electrical engineers, um, mechanical engineers, structural engineers, environmental engineers, um, town planners, etc.
2: And is it something that's only really applied for complex building structures rather than, you know, a domestic building?
1: No, not necessarily. So you certainly get a lot of benefit out of um, using it on more complex um, buildings. However, on just um, residential houses, for instance, it's a great tool to visualize what to the client what they actually get. And also to plan it much better and better coordinated, so that if you, let's say, just install a heat pump somewhere, right? If you if you've modeled all of that, everyone knows exactly that there needs to be a hole in the wall, in a s- exact certain location.
2: Yep. So it increases the uh, ability to deliver what you'd hoped, rather than exactly. Most yes. Those buildings, I think, there's often a oh, that was supposed to be a two foot to the left, <laughs> than it is at the moment.
3: Um, So what kind of level of um, sort of BIM implementation is occurring in Australia at the moment?
1: So it depends. Um, There are some pilot projects, let's call them, on the mainland that have been delivered on a very high level of BIM. And in fact, I believe um, in the early 2000s, Australia um, was quite advanced in that area because Tasmanian companies... Um implemented certain software in the architecture and in the engineering um, industry um quite quite early compared to other countries um but because there's no push from um state governments and um and the crown on projects we're working on um to to use those technologies and a lot of people are uncomfortable or they don't know they can't judge on the benefits too well so um therefore the implementation in Australia in general is on a very low level at the moment. And in Tasmania, it's even lower. So, and we, we don't even have many pilot projects. So we've been working on, let's say, three projects that were implemented at least to a reasonable level where I can say that was actually a BIM project.
3: So if Australia is not that advanced in application of um, building information modelling so far, what countries are kind of leading that around the world?
1: So the UK has been the first m- major country to mandate BIM to a certain level. Um that was that got mandated in twenty sixteen, where all government funded jobs above I think five hundred thousand dollar or um probably pounds, <laughs> um, had to be delivered in a certain level of BIM. So therefore they all the companies in the UK had to get trained up in order to deliver that. Um and they've got pretty good guidelines that have now been um, introduced into an ISO standard that is being used worldwide. Um, that doesn't mean that the UK was the first country that imple- or where BIM was implemented. Saying in the mining industry, for instance, even in Australia, BIM concepts are implemented really well. Or in Germany, in the automotive industry, in where. A lot of money goes into the fabrication and um, into into production lines where everything needs to be spot on and really well coordinated. So, BIM has been used to some degree in those uh, those sectors for a long, long time.
3: And has that had a significant influence on the construction industry in the UK? It
1: it is really hard to 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 measure. Um, it certainly had a big impact because people had to get trained up in order to, instead of drawing on in 2D, um, creating 3D models and utilizing those 3D models and learn how to not only create those models, but also to use models created by others in order to refine those. Whereas previously you would just use the 2D sheets as an underlay and then you would draw over it. Right? So there's a lot, a lot of technology that people need to learn. It is um, a challenge for companies or people who are not too familiar with uh, information technologies in general so it's probably a big challenge for the older generation in the construction industry in in general much more than for younger people coming into um, so
2: is it really as a concept it's just uh, like a way of storing data that provides a more detailed image of the building plans
1: yes certainly that that's certainly part of it but then it
2: has an ongoing role in the construction
1: yes correct so you start early on with the concept and you refine all of that until the building's built and then you can use all the data that's been collected. Let's say, um, simple example, um, the client specifies certain light fittings that are going to be used and they have a servicing interval, right? So they need to be replaced every 24 months and that information gets put into that database at some stage, which can then be drawn up from the um, the facility manager in order to... Um, create a schedule, right? I've got those 5,000 light fittings in the Menzies Mm. (laughs) building that I need to replace every 24 months. That can obviously um, then be used to streamline the management of the facility, but also um, estimate costs much better at an early stage. How much is it going to cost me to run this facility? Not what's been currently done. You try to build a building as cheap as possible (laughs) and then it's been handed over then all the data is going to... The facility managers, they then walk around and they capture all the data manually, even though that someone has got the data already and captured previously. And then the facility manager can estimate how much is is it going to cost. So
2: it's kind of like a dynamic um, building model or building manual or building plan. So does that also mean that if you were to change a part of that building afterwards, that you then just update the building information model and then... It kind of knows that that change has happened, and absolutely you can understand why, rather yes. than oh, that's quite good.
1: That, that that's that's the ideal scenario. So if you then use the model in order to capture changes, if you know if you've got certain equipment that you use and you capture, why why does my uh, mechanical equipment um, break regularly? You can actually, for a larger organization, um, we're working a lot in the, in the aquaculture industry here if they know that certain pump types fail regularly and they can capture that data, then they will most likely for the next project not not choose that model again. They would probably choose another fabricator for, the, for those pumps.
2: So it can kind of be used as a quality improvement tool. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's great. Uh,
3: so from what you've told us, it seems like this model um, is something that can be used for the the entire life of the, the building. Um, Alex, on. could you tell us a bit more about sort of maybe some examples of how this has been used uh, to maintain buildings?
0: Yeah, so um, as Klaus just said, um, often, often the person building the building and the person using it are not the same person. So um, the person building the building is interested in getting it as cheap as possible. Um, and that could create problems for the person using it. Um, what people tend to think is that uh, the cost of a building is the cost of the construction. Whilst in reality, that's just a fraction of the cost of the building over its entire life. So when we design a building, we design it to last for 50 or 100 years. The construction cost is just a fraction of what that building is going to cost us to run over that entire period. And during that period, we have to do a lot of maintenance on the building. So Klaus gave the example of of light bulbs, but I think um, it was Los Angeles Airport, which was fully modeled in BIM. And every time there is something going wrong, every time they want to do an extension, a modification, an upgrade to, th- to the facilities, they go, they tap into that big database that they have and they can see the whole history of the building through time and they can see exactly where all the fittings are, what has been done, who did it, how much it did cost, what's the structural design of it, what's the architectural design, what's what's the electrical, hydraulics, and everything related to a specific part that they are working on. And that saves, as an estimate, around 30% in maintenance costs. Now, when you put that all that together over the life of a building, that's a lot of money. And that could pretty much be as much as the construction cost of the building.
2: It sounds to me like, and we'll get into this a little bit later when we're talking about the future applications of it, but it sounds to me like this is like as inevitable as the introduction of the computer to the workplace. But is it actually important to be measuring the success of building information management or modeling from like a cost reduction perspective? How would you even do that by comparing similar buildings? Like, is it possible?
1: It, it is very difficult because you never have two buildings with the same conditions that you build twice. Mm. Therefore, uh, measuring success of BIM is and has always been very difficult. Over time, you can gauge, okay, those those buildings that have been designed and constructed using building information management or modelling, um, they perform better than others, right? So there are now studies being undertaken in the UK and elsewhere in the world where hard facts speak and say those buildings cost us less. And they've probably cost us less during construction as well. But you never really, you never really know. So the big advantage of BIM that people um, propose is you you spend less money on variations during construction and project change orders because you've got a much more um, refined and um, and more detailed designed building if you've got it all modelled and coordinated using 3D technologies and that. Central database that everyone taps into. So, but measuring that is difficult. I've got to just got one example on a um, on a project for UN aquaculture in a land-based salmon farm. Are um, the main contractor to install all of the hydraulic systems, which was the biggest part of the whole project. Um, so the whole project was about a forty-fifty million dollar job. They usually have about twenty to thirty ma- major major. Um, Cost variations during construction happening, which are above five thousand dollars in value, so they can range from five to ten, 000, twenty thousand dollars each. Um, and on the project that we've designed for them, I think we've had three instead of those twenty to thirty. Let's say that those cost variations were worth ten thousand or five thousand dollars each. Yes, we had thirty thousand dollars of variation, which is not good. But on a normal job, they would have a million or three, two million dollars of cost variations, right? Mm, and good, yeah. the, the whole BIM process, only to implement that, the way that we did it, cost, let's say, two, three hundred thousand dollars on top of conventional planning and
0: design that we would usually... One of one of the roles also of, of BIM is to avoid clashes during construction. So um, buildings are complex systems and there are a lot of services running through them. Um, and often... On-site, if we don't do beam modeling in advance, we end up in situations where uh, things are clashing. For example, we can't install a structural element because there's a hydraulic element like a, a duct or a pipe in the way. Um, BIM also makes it easier to manage changes during construction. Um, so, for example, if, if the mechanical fitting has changed and we need new holes in the slabs or in the walls to run, um, you know, say, uh, ventilation or refrigeration or whatever other systems, that is much easier if we have a 3D model and a database that tells us where are all the structural elements and where we can make holes or where we can run the services without affecting the structural integrity of the building.
2: So what are some of the disadvantages? You may making it sound too good.
1: It costs a bit, so the, um, the fee structures change. So overall, as I just suggested, it's probably not going to cost more. <laughs> um, it's just that the traditional fee and contractual arrangements that we have at the moment. Um, it's a competitive environment. So during the design stage, um, there's usually a lead party, which is generally an architect, who gets commissioned to do the design. And they win the job because they don't win the job because they are the most expensive ones. <laughs> <laughs> right? They need to be competitive at that stage give, because the, the government will um, put out a request for tender, cost or price for the design services is usually valued somewhere between 25 and 70%. Therefore, if I'm above my competitors, let's say 10%, 20% um, above them, I'm probably not going to go and win the job. Whereas all the time and efforts and money that is being spent during that design stage should be able to recoup easily during the construction phase. And of course, maintenance, yes.
2: Okay, thanks, Alex and class. That sounds like really an important movement that's happening in the um, building information space, but also in the construction space and the engineering space more broadly. So, listeners, stick with us. And for our last part of the show or our next segment, we're going to be talking what this means for future in the industry.
3: You're listening to That's What I Call Science and we're talking about building information modelling or management. My name is Sarah Leiden and I'm joined by Neve Chapman along with our expert guest, Klaus Stroll from Gandhi and Roberts and uh, Alex Taum from School of Engineering at UTAS. Um, so in this segment, we're going to start talking about some future directions um, for BIM and also for the construction industry. Um, so Alex, let's start by looking at the engineering curriculum around Australia. So how is building information modeling being integrated into that engineering curriculum? And why do you think that's an important um, tool set for students to have when they go out into the industry? O-
0: all engineers receive uh, general project management training during their studies, um, as you know naturally they will be dealing with projects after they graduate. So it's it's an essential part. Generally speaking, Students studying engineering in Australia are, are trained to a certain level of competencies, as said by the Institution of Engineers of Australia. Uh, there are 16 of them. Project management pretty much touches bases on four or five of these competencies. So it's pretty much 25 to 30% of, of the knowledge that an engineer should have. BIM fits quite nicely into, into that space of, of project management, not so much into the drafting um, section or drafting knowledge. Uh, that the engineers should receive. Because as just Klaus said, it's not just a model, it's a database, it's a collection of information, and it's a tool to coordinate between different disciplines. So engineers should not only manage their own projects to a certain standard, but they should be able also to coordinate with other disciplines because they don't work alone. So a civil engineer will be working with um, a hydraulics engineer, structural engineer, transportation engineer if necessary, but they will also be working with with architects, with the builders themselves, with town planners, um, and electrical engineers, mechanical engineers, and so on. So there's a range of disciplines uh, that needs coordination uh, on the construction side. And many of, of the engineering graduates will actually choose a career pathway into project management, so solely focusing um, on the management and delivery of, of construction projects.
2: So you spoke earlier about how there were international um, standards, ISO standard. So there are international standard organisation um, guides that talk about how building information modeling can be used. So do you think something like that needs to happen here in Australia where I'm assuming there's some sort of uh, accreditation process that uh, accredited engineers can go through or like the engineers Australia could promote even like to not wait for government to try and mandate it like what happened in the UK So are there are other professional bodies who could lead the charge in promoting the use of building information technology?
1: So uh, I believe it's going to uh, the success of BIM is going to be client driven. So the government is a big client, obviously, one of the biggest um, that we have, certainly. As I just mentioned, other clients are already demanding it in the mining industry, or with UN Aquaculture, for instance. I don't think they want to build another facility without BIM anymore. <laughs> That's for sure. With Engineers Australia, um, they can certainly provide frameworks where they, where um, engineers could be accredited to, su- to some degree. That would help the clients to select their project partners wisely. If the government mandates BIM, they would then want to select the suitable um, companies to work with. One way of um, selecting them would be, right? please show me your accreditation from Engineer Australia that you've done the BIM course or that you've got um, capability in that area. It it all goes hand in hand. So Mm -hmm. it's not just the government mandating BIM without having anyone being able to deliver it. (laughs) So that would be the worst thing that could happen. Therefore, we need to have some base knowledge in the industry before mandates could go out.
3: Alex, could you tell us a little bit about some future technologies that might be involved in this space?
0: So, um, technology is is improving rapidly. One one example is now that now now we have lidar um, in in cell phones, uh, which shows a huge improvement in minimizing the technology and implementing it. Uh, make it more widely available. So um, when it comes to BIM, people tend to think it's, it's a 3D model. Well, again, it's, it's, a, it's a, a database, a huge database. You can input so many sources of information into that database, including, but not limited to a picture from, from your cell phone, uh, a 3D survey using some laser equipment on site or, um, of course, a drawing from a computer. We got to a stage where um, here in Hobart we had a project and we had a very complex wall, like it was very complex in shape, and the only way to build the wall was using VR goggles. So the information from from that model, from that 3D uh, database was uh, projected into that VR setup that the building were wearing on site, and then they could see which brick goes where exactly on the slab? And that allowed them to to achieve a very complex shaped wall that could never ever be delivered um, using using the equipment we have. Another thing I anticipate that's gonna be happening soon is instead of calling engineers to have inspections on site, I think we will get to a stage where um, using the model and using surveying equipment on site, all that could be combined and projected back to an engineer sitting in an office, wearing, you know, three, uh, VR goggles, um, and inspecting things on site. Things like building, you know, multi-story uh, residential or, or commercial buildings. Builders could again see projections of each piece of the building and how they fit together. Finally, the the, the last thing I anticipate to be happening uh, soon is with the combination of of manufacturing of construction products and and construction itself. Um, and with the advancement of prefabrication, I see the same 3D database being fed into a machine somewhere on the factory to produce parts of the building. And, and that's particularly relevant to, to timber design uh, and, and timber projects, where that information could be fed into a sophisticated router, CNC router, which will then be able to... Um, cut all the timber pieces to shape with all the holes, with all the windows, doors in them. These can be brought on site. Someone with the VR technology will see exactly where they will fit and they will just crane them in place and fix them using the provided fixtures.
2: Yeah, my mind's blown that they're already using like... VR headsets on a building site. That's kind of because when you'd mentioned it, like, is there a place for the consumer being just able to visualize things? I'm sure that you probably have lots of stories of people being thinking they want something, but then when it's there and they see it, it's very different. So, do you think this will improve the? engagement with the client?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's VR and AR. So VR is when you put a headset on and you don't see the re- reality, only a projected image in front of you. And there's AR, augmented reality, where you've got some um, device like HoloLens, um, that's an AR device, where you actually project something into the real world. So you see everything as normal, but on top of that, you project something. So you could project a, the, the your dream home, that The architect has designed for you. You could project that into the space where it actually is going to go. So we're we're actually working with um, a client at the moment where the models that we're creating, we're feeding them into our um, HoloLens and they can walk around on site and see where services in ground are so that when the excavator driver digs up a hole that they don't damage any existing services and they can do all the set out on site using the that technology so that's quite exciting that's currently in in a trial phase very exciting
2: yeah I think there's lots of really like tech innovation that I hadn't really anticipated I suppose being like on the consumer end I only just thought about how I would interact with not like the very far reaching applications for actually constructing okay well this sounds like a really exciting space to keep our eyes out for the future If you enjoyed the show, please let us know by getting in touch with us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, searching That's What I Call Science. My name is Dr. Neve Chapman. I'd like to thank my co-host, Dr. Sarah Lydon, and our expert guests, Klaus and Alex. Until next time, thank you and goodbye. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. Gemmaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. Gemmaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.